for the Severson family. Um, they are not feeling well this morning, so they decided they would stay home and keep their germs to themselves. Never a bad thing. We've, we've changed in our thought of that over the years, though, haven't we? We used to say, oh, if it's only a cold, come to church. Well, we kind of now say, if you're sick, stay home, listen to us online, watch online, get better, take care of yourself. Uh, we know you're still participating in the service, so we're grateful for that. We're grateful for the technology, but we do want you to be praying for them. Also, they shared with us last Sunday about the uh, little boy, Sonny, who... Um, his parents chose life over abortion, and uh, he was struggling with uh, not being fully developed uh, for his uh, at birth time, uh, and Sonny uh, succumbed to death, passed away this week, so pray for the family. Uh, I know that they would appreciate it uh, and be encouraged by knowing that others are praying for them. All right, grab your copy of the scriptures. We hope that you bring them with you every Sunday, every time you come to worship with us, because we want you to know that we're using God's word, not our own. Uh, Even when we post it up on the screen, uh, we want you to have your copy of the scriptures with you uh, so you can be sure to be like a Berean and check us out, make sure that what we're saying is true and right before uh, our great God. Uh, In fact, as you look at the title of our message this morning, it's titled, Watch Out! Have you ever said that? Our daughter, Rachel, uh, she seems to be a magnet when it comes to baseball or softball games. Um, one year, they came home for, uh, for Easter, and she said she had this idea she was going to try out for the softball team at BBC. I really didn't think that was a good idea from the start, but she wanted to do it. And so, okay, she said, Micah and Josh, you need to throw high pops to me so I can try and catch them. And, and, and throw other things as well. So I don't know if it was Micah or Josh, but anyway, they were throwing high pops, and then they decided to throw uh, more direct throws, um, and I don't think it hit her glove at all, right in the face. Uh, and, you know, suck it up. Not that bad. You're not the first person to get hit in the face with a baseball. She went back to school on Monday. Uh, we went up to Messina, Uh, to see my mom, and next thing we know, we get a call from Rachel, and she says, I'm I'm in the nurse's office at school, um, and they think I broke my my nose or my eye bone or whatever. I definitely have a concussion, and on and on she goes with all these things, and what a story that was, and nobody ever yelled to her, watch out, but then she goes to a baseball game at BBC, and she's holding a little baby, I think it was a dorm parent's baby or something, next thing we know, The fly ball is coming right at her over the fence. Somebody says, watch out! Look out, it's coming! She ducks and, uh, you know, seems like every time she goes to a game, she needs to be told to watch out, all right? We need to be told to watch out as well as children of God. And that's really what Peter is saying to us as he brings this chapter, this, in fact, this book to a close. We're going to start off with a very familiar passage of Scripture, one that we probably all know, 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to start with verse 8, and then we're going to work our way through the rest of the text this morning. Surprise, surprise, we're going to finish this book, okay? But 
We're not going to spend a lot of time in the last couple of verses uh, from verse 12 to the bottom because it's personal greetings and so on and so forth. We will draw some application to us, but we want to focus most of our time this morning on verses 8 through 11. Would you stand together with me as we read from God's Word? Uh, It's up on the screen. We're all reading from the same version that way. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 through 12. Peter says, Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to be his eternal glory by Jesus Christ, after you have suffered a while... Perfect, establish, strengthen, and settle you. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. By Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. Is that it? Oh, okay. Let me just finish it off for you. Verse 13 says, She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you as does Mark, my son. Greet, now some people really like this last verse. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to you all who are in Christ Jesus. We'll talk about that briefly, about what that really means. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you today, and we are so thankful to be together with brothers and sisters in Christ, to open your word together, to study your word together, to look at it so it may make a difference in our lives. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher today. That you would take the words uh, from the Apostle Peter, make them real to us, make them uh, something that we can put into practice in everyday life, make us more effective children of God who will serve you well in the areas that you have placed us. Thanks for your love and your blessing upon us today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, you may be seated. Let me start by asking you a question this morning. Are you ready? Are you ready? You might be saying, are you ready for what, Pastor? Well, are you ready to put some boots on the ground? Are you ready to get in the battle? Because last week, we were going to channel our inner three-year-old, right? I asked you to do that by asking the question, why, of the text? Why is Peter asking us to be submissive and why all these things Peter says that we might not really want to do? This week, we're going to channel, if you will, our inner warrior, Okay, we're going we're gonna to get ready for some battle. We're going to do some work today. Let's learn this morning how we can be effective in our standing for the cause of Christ. Peter has again and again and again throughout the book of 1 Peter told us to submit, subject yourselves to, put yourself under. Today, he's going to say, we're going to battle. We're going to fight this thing out. We're going, to get, we're going to get stuck in to serving the Lord. So if you're ready to move on from submission to battle, we're here today and we're going to talk about how we do that. So let's think about that this morning. What is a warrior? What does a warrior do? A warrior is a defender. When we send our troops into battle, we send them in to defend what we hold near and dear to us. And it doesn't matter what country you come from. That is what you are doing when you send your soldiers to the battlefield. They're going to defend 
what is right in your mindset. So we need to consider, first of all, our mindset here in verse 8. Any warrior knows that if you want to have victory in battle, you have to have the right mindset. You have to be thinking about what is required for success in the heat of the battle. You have to have already determined that. You can't get there in the midst of the battle and then try to figure out, what am I going to do to be successful? That's why we put so much time and energy and effort and even money into training our men and women who are going to go into battle so they're ready when they get there. You and I, as children of God, we need to be ready before the battle hits us so we can be effective and and successful in the battle. One of the keys to victory is knowing who the enemy is. You have to know who the enemy is if you're going to defeat the enemy. And I was talking to somebody, I can't remember who it was, just this week about this very idea of how the how battle, how war has changed over the years. And it really started in Vietnam, right? What was the problem we had in the war in Vietnam? We really didn't know who the enemy was. It it was the beginning of what we call guerrilla warfare, and and we didn't know who the good guys were and who the bad guys were. We didn't know who was on our side and who was against us. As Christians, we need to know who is for us and who is against us. We need to know the devil. We don't need to focus on the devil, but we just need to know who he is. We need to know who the enemy is, and Peter spends some time talking about that. Peter defines the enemy in the second part of verse 8, so that's where we're going to begin this morning. We're going to look at the second part of verse 8, and then we're going to back up to the first part of verse 8. We see the identity of the enemy. Peter calls him your adversary, the devil. Names, and when we think about names, especially in Scripture, are meant to be descriptive, especially if God gives a name. It's to tell us, it's to give us some information that we might not have otherwise. So don't just gloss over the name. Don't just look past the name. And the name Peter used here for our enemy is indeed very descriptive. We learn about, a lot about him just from his name. Your adversary, the devil. Okay, this is the word diablos, okay? Very simply put, Satan is an accuser. That's what that word means, diablos. He's, he's an accuser. He's a slanderer, if you will. In fact, you know what? He's more than an accuser. He's often a false accuser. He makes false accusations about the followers of God. He makes false accusations about God himself. That's who the devil is. Don't ever think you will get the truth from the devil because you won't. He is a false accuser. He is a liar. In fact, Scripture says, Jesus says, you are of your father the devil. You are a lie. He was a liar from the beginning. After he boasted and became proud and thought that he would take the place of God, he became a liar right from the get-go. And so we want to make sure that we understand who Satan is. We often think of Satan as one who accuses the followers of God, accuses you and accuses I. But you know what? There's more to it than that. He actually is an accuser of who God is. Think about this for a moment. Satan accuses you and he accuses me. We know that because 
uh, Job talks, we, we read in the book of Job that Satan was taking his place in line and, and, and making accusations against the followers of God. And God had that conversation with him. Have you considered my servant Job? Did you look at Job? He's, he loves me. He's faithful. And he says, oh, he's only faithful because you protect him. Um, and so God, God says, okay, go ahead. You can, you can have a, a whack at Job, if you will, and you can see that he will remain faithful. But more than that, Job goes after God. He wants people to not know who God is, and so he undermines the very nature and the very character of our great God. We see that Satan accused God in Genesis chapter 3. At the very get-go, he wanted Adam and Eve, the, the, the creation of God, to doubt who God is. Hath God said, did God really say that you can't eat of the trees of the garden? He cast doubt in the minds about who God was. In paradise, of no place else. In paradise, he starts to accuse, he starts to assault the very character of the one true God. And you know what? He's doing the same thing today. He still slanders God by false and blasphemous suggestions. That's how he hopes to get people to not trust God. In the very beginning, they don't, he doesn't want people to think about who God is, his love, his care, his payment for sin, the very just nature, the very perfect nature. Of it. He doesn't want people to think that God wants what is best for them. He wants people to only think that God is going to send them to hell. He wants, him, he wants people to only think that God is looking out for only God. That is the farthest from the truth that we can get. God is so interested in you, so loves you, that he sent his only son to die in your place. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. God loves you. He wants what is best for you. He cares for you. He's provided everything you need to become a child of God, and a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Nobody has provided as much for you as what God has provided for you. God is fully worthy of your trust and of my trust. God has never, ever done anything that should cause us to doubt him or to not trust him. Peter also tells us that Satan is our adversary. Not only is he a doubter, not only is he a slanderer who wants us to doubt who God is, but he's our adversary. In other words, he's our opponent. Let me use an example for you from the sports world. Surprise, surprise, right? Okay. When I was growing up and watching baseball, there was a very real understanding that your opponent was not your friend on the field. Why would, you, why would you talk like that? Why would you think that? Why would you teach people to play ball like that? Well, you were out to beat your opponent. You were out to defeat them. In fact, can I tell you this? There's a rule in the baseball rule book about fraternizing with the players. It says there's no fraternization allowed in the game. I remember commentators when I watched baseball growing up, WPIX, Channel 11, the commentators say, look at those two players. They're, they're talking to each other. They shouldn't be doing that because they're on opposite teams. 
And now you look at baseball today. In fact, I was just watching as I was getting ready to um, uh, finalize my, my sermon. I was watching it, and I don't know, the two worst players on the Yankees, you know who they are. For some reason, somehow they got on base, okay? I won't tell you their names, but he's on second base, and the other guy, he got a base hit, surprisingly enough, and the other guy walked. And you know what they're doing? He slides into second base, and he walks, and he gets, he pats the other, the, the other player on the back, and they're having this good old conversation, like they're the best of friends, and then they pan the camera over to first base, and, and the guy's like, oh yeah, how's it going? And they're talking about how, how good things are, and, what, and they're smiling, and they're laughing. Their head's not in the game. That's why they're the two worst players, because they're not focused on what they need to be focused on. But you see, the rule book says this, players in uniform shall not address or mingle with spectators, nor sit in the stands before, during, or after a game. No manager, coach, or player shall address any spectator before, during, or after a game. Here it is, players of opposing teams shall not fraternize at any time while in uniform. Why? Because it distracts from the purpose that you're there. You're there to play your very best. You're there to put every effort into the game. You're there to beat the other team. And this is not to make you enemies with one another. It's simply to make you focus on what you're there for. Can I tell you what? I think as Christians, we sometimes fraternize with the enemy. What do you mean, pastor? Well, we take them lightly. He's not really that bad. I mean, we see him as a guy with, who's all red and horns and a pitchfork. That's how we see Satan. That's not how Satan is. He's not a comic. He's not a character that, you know, if we just don't pay attention to him, he'll go away. He is out to destroy you. And if you, if you lessen your focus on what his purpose is and what his goal is, he is going to make you an ineffective child of God. We need to make sure that we are not taking Satan lightly. We are not doing anything to befriend him. How do you befriend Satan? Well, by the things you watch, the things you do, the places you go, the things you consume. All of those things, some of of the things that we allow into our lives make us have a light look at sin. Ah, It's not really that bad. It's okay, in fact. Can I give you some more names of our enemy? And by giving you names of our enemy, it helps us understand who this enemy is. It's a modified list. I took it right from, the, from Strong's Dictionary of the, of the Scriptures. Strong's says this, The devil is also identified in the New Testament as Beelzebub, the prince of the devils in Matthew chapter 12. He's also called Hopanaris the evil, malignant, or hurtful one in Matthew chapter 13, verses 19 and 38 and 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3. He's called Ophis Ho Archias, the serpent, the old serpent in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9. Ho Etros, the enemy, the hateful one, the adversary. Ho to Cosmo Archon, the first chief ruler of the world, the prince of this world. Archon Tondemion, the prince of the devils. Toerios, 
the prince and the power of the air. Those things are serious identifying markers of who Satan is. He is not good. He is not friendly to believers. He is evil. He is the personification, if you will, of what is evil. He is the people that go in and shoot up places. He is the people that kills babies. He is the, pe- he is the identifying factor of what is wrong with our world today. That's why he is called the prince in the power of the air. He is influencing the world in which we live. And as the children of God, we cannot allow that influence to be played out in our life. We must stand against the devil. We must see him for who he is. It's clear from this list that Satan is not someone to be taken lightly, neither is he anyone that a follower of God should fraternize with if we can take a page out of the Major League Baseball rule book. No fooling around with Satan. He's in it for the, for the win. He wants to take you captive. Now, you, he can't take your salvation away from you, but you know what it means when he takes you captive? He makes you ineffective. He makes you useless as a Christian. Yeah, he, he puts us on the bench where those two players should be, but anyway... Um, you and I, we need to Satan, see Satan for who he is. We need to think, we need to have the right mindset when we, ha- when we deal with Satan. We need to see that Peter is speaking from the truth and from experience. Peter tells us in verse 8 how we can take a stand against Satan. He says, don't be intoxicated. Let me tell you this, we're not talking about alcohol here, okay? When Satan, or when Peter says, be sober, he is using that idea of being sober as a mindset here. He, he wants us to understand. Now, when you and I think of that word sober, we often think about alcohol and drunkenness. And we think of that because it's a good illustration of what we shouldn't be, right? Does anybody like to be around a drunk no, because they, they can't control themselves. They, they're being controlled by something outside of their body, something that they've put into their body. Alcohol is a perfect illustration of being not sober. So it is actually an illustration of how we can be sober. When one drinks too much alcohol, what happens to them? They are intoxicated. They are controlled by something else. While as a Christian, we should not be a fan of alcohol or one given to too much alcohol, our message this morning is not focusing on whether a Christian should drink or not. That's between you and God. I have my opinion on it, and I've shared that with you many times, but you need to come to that conclusion yourself, that conviction yourself. This is a topic, and that's a topic for another day. And if you'd like to have a personal conversation, I'm happy to have that with you. Um, But Peter is challenging us to be sober in a different sense, in a very real sense. He is challenging us to be in control of our thoughts, in control of our lives, and to make sure that those, our thoughts and our lives are not being controlled by the things of this world, the things that are in Satan's realm, the things that that Satan likes to get into our minds and into our thoughts and into our hearts and drive us away from the things of God. Paul gives us this reminder in Titus chapter 2, verse 12, when he says this. Well, let's start with verse 11. He says, For the grace of God, 
We sang about the grace of God this morning, didn't we? For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And here it is, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and live self-controlled. That word self-controlled, same word as the word sober. To live soberly and upright and godly lives in this present age. Can I tell you this? As followers of Jesus, we can't let the world control us or intoxicate us. But rather, we must be controlled by the example of the living word of God, Jesus Christ himself, and we must be controlled by the written word of God. I like what John MacArthur says about this idea of being sober. He says, it includes ordering and balancing life's important issues, which requires the discipline of mind and body that avoids the intoxicating allurements of the world. And how do we order ourselves? How do we, how do we discipline our mind and discipline our bodies? This book right here. Paul uses the illustration of a boxer, of a runner. I don't box as one who beats the air. I discipline myself. And you know, when you're disciplined, there are certain things that you use to discipline yourself in the athletic world. As a Christian, there are certain things that we use to discipline ourselves. And the things we use is the Holy Spirit living within us. We submit to the Holy Spirit's leadership in our lives. And the only way we can submit to the Holy Spirit's leadership in our life is if we're in the, book of, in the word of God. We have to give the Holy Spirit something to use in our lives. He can't, he's not going to pull it out of thin air. He could, but we need to be reading the word of God so the word of God is fresh in our minds and the Holy Spirit can use that to teach us, to convict us, to uh, help us make right decisions. So for the child of God, being sober means that we are not allowing worldly things to control our life. But rather, we are choosing to let Scripture and our love for Jesus and our desire to let the Holy Spirit control our lives. That's what it means to be sober from Peter's point of view and from a scriptural idea. We want to be sober. Not only are we supposed to be sober and, and we, or not intoxicated, we're to be intentional. We have to be intentional. Peter commands us to be vigilant. You notice how this goes hand in hand with the idea of being sober? If you're not sober, you cannot be vigilant. There's an intentionality needed to be vigilant. To be vigilant means to be watchful or to refrain from sleep. When you are intoxicated, can you be watchful? Not really. If you see those lights flashing behind your car because you've had too much to drink... The trooper gets out, he says to you, I want you to walk that line. You're looking at the line, and I don't speak this from experience, by the way. You're looking at the line, and you're trying to walk the line. You're trying to watch the line, but you can't, because something else is controlling your life. Touch your nose, so you watch your finger go like this. You can't be watchful. If you're intoxicated, you can't be a faithful follower of God if you're living like the world lives. We need to make sure that that is not happening. Remember, this is the same command that Jesus gave to Peter and his disciples that night when when he went off into the garden. He took the disciples, he left a bunch of them further back, he took Peter, James, and John 
for a little bit further with them, he said, what? Be watchful. Be watchful. Be vigilant. What happened to them? They failed to be watchful. They fell asleep. Came back. He woke them up. Be vigilant. Be watchful. Lest you what? Fall into temptation. If we want to have victory over temptation, we must be watchful. We must be vigilant. Be vigilant. Watch and pray. Those should be key words in the life of the child of God. And we learn from Jesus this about facing temptation. The only way to keep from being engulfed in temptation is to be aware of Satan's craftiness and not only go immediately to our Heavenly Father in prayer when we are in the midst of being tempted, but we pray even in anticipation of coming temptation. We need to pray understanding that temptation is always at our doorstep. Because if we're, if we're truthful, it is. Temptation is all, Satan is always trying to take us out of the game and put us on the bench. He wants us to be ineffective. Being intentionally alert allows us to be wary of Satan and his schemes against us. We need to be people with the right mindset. Once we have the right mindset, we understand what our mission is. And Peter describes that mission for us in verses 9 through 11. What is our mission? Peter says, resist him steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace, who called us to eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered for a little while, may he perfect you, establish you, strengthen you, and settle you. And to him be the glory and dominion forever. So what do we do? What's our mission? Well, first of all, our mission is to stand against Satan. Stand against him. And you notice that I didn't capitalize Satan. Word had a fit with me every time I tried to write Satan and didn't capitalize it. I don't want to give him that much power. He doesn't deserve to be capitalized. In my mind... And in your mind, he shouldn't either. We should be uh, seeking God's dominance over Satan in our life. We stand against him. The word Peter uses here in the Greek, it means to stand against with everything you have to stand. Resist with all your strength. No matter what you do, stand against it. So here's the thing. Satan's going to use every tool he has to limit the work of Jesus Christ. You understand that, right? Satan is going to do whatever he can to limit the work of God in your life and in the life of people in general. He will outright lie about God and his word. That's not, that's not below him. He will outright lie about God. He will sow seeds of doubt in the minds of the followers of Jesus. <laughs> you don't really believe that, do you? You you can take this book with you in public? Ah, people will laugh at you. People will make fun of you. People will criticize. He's trying to sow doubt in the minds of the believers. He will try to get those hearing the gospel truth to refuse it or to doubt its power. 
Have you witnessed to somebody in the past and this? Nah, I don't know that God can really do that. I don't think God can really change me. I'm too bad a person to, to be changed by God. No, you have to remember that our God is all-powerful. He is omnipotent. He is in the business of changing lives. No individual is too bad to come to know Jesus as their Savior. But Satan is going to try and, and stop those hearing the gospel, hearing the good news of Jesus Christ, from understanding the power of God. And by the way, if they know you well, and you're not living in the power of God, they're going to know that. They're going to see that. And they might not call you out to your face about it, but they'll say, I know you. I, I know that you don't live that way. So we have to understand, Satan will use whatever tools he can to cause you to doubt the power of God. He will persecute the bearer of good news. You and I probably haven't faced the persecution the way some have. The Beckleys, they want to be able to share the gospel with Dendi Muslims. That is going to bring persecution into their lives. The Muslims don't want you sharing the good news with anybody. And they don't care what country you live in, by the way. When I went on map in 1988, 1987, that many years ago, we came back and they asked us, did you guys suffer any persecution? Was there anything that, was, you know, that you felt like you were afraid or persecuted? We went to Africa. We went, I mean, representations from, all our, from our school, several places around the country. You know the only people who faced persecution the people that went to minister in Detroit, Michigan because they were working among Muslim people. They faced persecution right here in America. We were in Africa. Didn't face any persecution. It doesn't matter what country you live in. If you're out communicating the truth of God, people who don't want you to communicate the truth may very well persecute you, even here in America. That's Satan's work. That's what he does. He wants people to doubt who our God is. Satan will slander you. It's his name. He's a slanderer. He will slander you. He will use other people to slander you, to make false accusations against you. That will hinder your testimony. So what must we do? Peter says, stand. Stand. And how do you stand? Well, let me first of all say that we cannot stand in our own power. We cannot stand in our own strength. Paul tells us how we are to stand. Over in Ephesians chapter 6, he writes this, Put on the whole armor of God, that you what? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Verse 13, he says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand firm, stand therefore. Stand. What does he tell us? He tells us how to stand in Ephesians chapter 6. Stand having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. What is the first thing that Paul tells us we have to do in this text? We have to be strong in the Lord and in the power, the strength of his might. We can't do it in our own strength. We have no hope of standing in our own abilities. We must stand in the power of God. And then Paul says, we must put on the belt of truth. 
I don't think we really understand what the belt of truth is or how significant it is, though. What is the belt of truth? <laughs> when I played hockey, wore a garter belt. Now, I know this was a long time ago. They probably don't use the same kind of equipment. But we wore a garter belt that we put on, and every, a lot of our pads hooked to that garter belt. You held up your socks with your garter belt. You held your knee pads. That's what kept everything in place. That's similar with the belt of truth. Listen to the explanation of the belt of truth. It is fitting that the belt of truth is the first piece of the whole armor of God. Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the belt of truth is only through, uh, truth only comes through him. It, it's the utmost importance in the life of the child of God. You and I have nothing to stand on unless we're standing in the truth. You see, without the truth, the rest of the armor would be of no use to us because we would not have the spirit of truth, John 15, 26. When Paul refers to the whole armor of God, Paul invokes the image of a soldier ready for battle. Here's what the belt was for a Roman soldier. The belt of a Roman soldier in Paul's day was not a simple leather strap that we use, like we use today. I mean, I've got a nice belt, but it's, it's more than that. You see, it was a thick heavy leather and metal band, which was a protective piece hanging down over the front of the soldier. The belt held the soldier's sword and his other weapons. The belt of truth of the spiritual armor is the sword and holds the sword of the spirit. It links truth and the word of God and the word of God is truth. The belt of truth is absolutely essential in the fight against the wicked one. We can't fight without this belt and the belt is none other than the very word of God in connection with the Holy Spirit. So we, we must stand against Satan. We must be strong in the faith. We must be steadfast. We must be firm. We must be immovable in the faith. Now, this word for faith, I'm going to throw a curveball at you, okay? This word for faith is not the word that we define as believing that God is able to do what he says he will do in ordering my life according. You see, I could have asked you a trick question this morning. And I would have said, what is faith? And most of you would have said, believing that God is able to do what he says he will do in ordering my life. That's not the word for faith here. Okay? It's very close, but the word for faith here is that body of truth that has been handed down to the child of God from God himself through the apostles, through the writers of scripture. Jude says, stand on the word of truth, the body of truth. Stand in the faith, having done all to stand. Here's the definition. It is that once for all faith, which is the inscripturated revelation of God and constitutes the faith on which believers stand solidly and from which they continually resist Satan. This strong stand is the result of faithful leading of shepherds in the church, as Paul indicates in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 14. You and I are told to stand in the faith. The faith is the body of truth that has been handed down. Miguel, as he trains pastors in Europe, what does he train them with? He trains them with the word of God so they can stand on the truth. Oh yeah, he uses other books just like we use other books when we train people in South Africa and when we train people here. We use other books that help us, but they all must be grounded in the word of God. They must be the truth of God's word. Listen to me. That's why 
I and others on our church leadership team are so dogmatic when it comes to what we believe and what our church stands for. We must believe the truth. We must let the word of God determine what truth is and we must live by it and we must defend it to the very end. That's why I'm so careful about what I recommend for you to read or to listen to or in this day and age in which we live, I want you to be so very careful about what you find on the internet to look at. Even though it calls them, they call themselves Christians and, and Bible-oriented, they must pass the sta- standard of God's word. They, they can't be people who spiritualize the word of God. They can't be people who uh, take lightly the character and the nature of God or make the, the spirit of God something that he's not supposed to be. It must be based on the word of God. That's why I tell you, you know, I listen to things on Christian radio so I can, well, some of it I enjoy, but I also want to know what you might be listening to. And I've told you in the past, hey, let that guy said, it's not right. What he teaches in that particular broadcast is not correct. So-and-so who has a massive church and has hundreds and thousands of followers, he's not teaching the truth. She doesn't know what she's talking about because she's not properly interpreting the word of God. We must know the word of God. And it must be the standard by which we judge everything. And as a pastor, it is my responsibility for you to know the truth. Scott gave me a book that he's, uh, he was involved in some discipleship stuff. He said, can you go through this and, and make sure that it's good stuff? So I sat down. I didn't get through the whole book, but I sat down. I started making notes. And I said, this is okay. This, I, I hope it was helpful. So uh, another friend of mine when we were in South Africa ha- handed me, he said, hey, this, the pastor of this, my girlfriend's church preached this message on the book of Revelation. Boy, did he get a bunch of notes from me. And I, I, I marked up the, the text because he gave out a handbook. I marked it all up and read. I said, you, know, you should see red flags when they say this kind of stuff. We must know the word of God. A professor at Bible college, he used to say, Satan knows the word of God. That's his advantage because you don't know it. Wow. We must know the word of God. It needs to be that which drives us and it's the heartbeat of our life. So we are strong in the faith. We must be sure because of who God is. We're not sure because of who we are. We are sure because of who God is. And as one of the 12, Peter spent years of his life personally interacting with Jesus. He had a pretty good understanding of who God is. He speaks from first-hand experience about how God works in the lives of his children. As Peter comes to an end here in 1 Peter chapter 5, he tells us that God is a God of compassion. He says he's the God of all grace, and that grace is the essence of God's love and compassion. Paul speaks of the amazing grace in Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 8 and 9, where he writes, you know it, you can quote it with me. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. God's grace is what demonstrates his love toward us. The good news is that he never runs out of grace. He is the God of all grace. He's the God who is full of grace. And not just grace for salvation. 
Remember that old hymn, there's room at the cross for you. Though millions have come, there's still room for one. There's room at the cross for you. And once you've come to experience the grace of God in salvation, the grace of God is what keeps you making right choices, good decisions, understanding what is right, interacting in the lives of other people in a gracious way because it's the grace of God that is poured out in us and through us. Our God is a God of compassion. Our God is also a God who called. We know that God has called us to salvation, right? If you're here this morning and you've trusted in Jesus Christ, it's not because you went looking for him. The Bible says there's none that seeketh after God, there's none that doeth good. God called us to himself. He worked in our lives, he convicted us of sin, he brought us to an understanding that, hey, I need to know Jesus as my personal savior. That's the work of God. For by grace you are saved. Not because you did some work or not because you read some other book. You are saved by the grace of God. God called us. We weren't looking for him. In fact, we understand that as it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. That's what scripture teaches us. And we're not going to spend time talking about that this morning because we already talked about it in 1 Peter chapter 1. That's what I just read to you. We are going to remind ourselves this morning that we need to praise God because he did call us. We need to thank God because he reached down into our lives and drew us out of the pit of sin and placed us on a solid footing and saved us and put us in the battle. Praise God and to God be the glory. God has called us to salvation, but he didn't stop there. He's also called us to service. He wants us to be busy serving him. He wants us to be busy spending our lives for him. When we do this, it brings glory to him and accomplishes his plan in our lives. Serving our great God brings glory to him. So he's the the God of compassion. He's the God who calls and he's also the God who will complete us. He's the God who will complete us. We, we used to have as our life verse when we served as missionaries in South Africa, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 24. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. This is a promise. God calls us to do a work and then he does the work through us. Remember, the, 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 the will of God will never take you where the grace of God cannot keep you. God doesn't call the fit, he fits the call. God is at work in our lives, he will complete it. That's a promise I'm so thankful for. God is going to finish the work that he started in us. He's gonna finish our salvation, Philippians chapter one, verse six, being confident of this one thing, that he who began a work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. In other words, till we see him face to face, he's gonna perform that work of salvation. That's a done deal, he's gonna do it but he's also called us to communicate that, 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 that love and that message to others. He's the God who saved us. He's the God who completes the service that he has called us to. And you know what? He's the God who completes our sanctification. You've been around here long enough, most of you, to, believe, to know that we believe in uh, initial sanctification, the moment of salvation, 
We also believe in progressive sanctification, that God is going to continue to work in us, teach us through the pages of Scripture, that we will become more and more like Jesus Christ with each passing day. And if we look back 10 years from today, we should be better equipped and more like Christ than we were today. We should be more like Christ than we were 10 years ago or five years ago or five days ago. But you know what? We also believe in perfect sanctification. The day we step on the shores of heaven, whether that be through the rapture of the church or that be through death, we're going to see him face to face. And what does John say? We'll become like him because we will see him as he is. Oh man, where's the hallelujah on that? Praise God. Thank you, Jesus, for that promise of your work in my life. And he says here in 1 Peter chapter 5, after you have suffered a little while, We may suffer, we may undergo persecution, but after you've suffered a little while, we should add in there, he will, just so we don't forget, okay? After we've suffered some persecution, God will perfect you, hallelujah. He will establish you, praise God. He will strengthen you, thank you, Jesus, and he will settle you. Not settle you so you become complacent and comfortable. He will settle you in the truth of the word of God so you are effective in your service for him. Wow, what an amazing God. That, my friends, is our mission. That is what God has called us to. Every one of us sitting in here in this room have been called to the same mission. That's the mission. Oh, I don't know if I can do it. Well, that's why he finishes off with verses 12 through 14 and the members of our team. You're not in it alone. You don't have to do it on your own. You don't have to do it by yourself. He mentions Silvanus. Who in the world is Silvanus? Well, for some reason, they used a, 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 probably a more proper name. Silvanus is another name for Silas. Probably the same Silas that traveled with Paul. Peter calls him faithful. Faithful in the ministry. Faithful to the service in which God has called him. He reminds us that you and I need to be faithful as well. And when you and I are faithful in whatever God has called us to be faithful in, we are a blessing, we are an asset, we are an encouragement to everyone else in the body of Christ. When every one of us are doing the thing that God called us to do, everyone else is encouraged. Hey, look what they're doing. I can do what God's called me to do because God helped them do what God called them to do. We can do it because God is at work in our lives. We want to be encouraging others to be faithful, and the best way we can do that is by being faithful to him. In essence, Silas was faithfully serving God and encouraging others to do the same. He was called by the same grace, and he ministered by the same grace, and he stood faithful by the same grace that you and I stand and serve faithful faithfully in today. And then he mentions she who is in Babylon. There's some question as to who the she is, okay? We can't say with certainty, but it could very well be a reference to the church in Rome. Peter was in Rome when he wrote this book. Peter was undergoing persecution. The church in Rome was undergoing serious persecution. Remember we talked about how Nero would use them as, use the human Christians as flaming torches, He would light them on fire around his garden as persecution. There's some, or there's a great deal of thought that this is who Peter's talking about when he says, she who is in Babylon, he's talking about the church in Rome. 
the church that is under persecution right now, standing for the cause of Christ, loves you. Wow. Wow. It reminds us, it reminds me of back in the 1980s when I was in Bible college, and we used to hear all the time that the church in Russia is praying for the church in America. The church, we just heard recently, the church in Ukraine is praying for the church in America. Why? Because they know what it means to be persecuted. They understand it. They understand that it's actually, in a very real sense, good for the church to face that and to go through that and to work through that. If I'm honest with you, in the 80s, I used to think, man, I don't want them to pray for me to go through persecution. Why would I want that? I'm not sure I want it now, if I'm honest with you. None of us want persecution. But you know what? When we face it and we work through it, we see God's faithfulness. We see God's hand at work in our lives. She who is in Babylon is praying for you, loves you, wants you to be faithful. And then he mentions Mark. Mark was the, uh, the pen man, if you will, of Peter. He he penned the gospel of Mark. That's why it bears his name. But it's not Mark's gospel. It's not the account that Mark had of Jesus Christ's ministry. It's the account of Peter's ministry uh, with Jesus. It's what Peter saw and dictated to young Mark who would write it and, and make it so we could read it down through the ages. He talks about Mark's faithfulness. What a great guy Mark is. He faithfully serves God. He loves God. And you know what? When you and I faithfully serve God, others around us see us as individuals who remain strong and true and faithful to the things God has called us to. As Peter wraps up things here, he encourages the brothers and sisters in Christ to be kind, to be gracious, to greet one another with a holy kiss. Okay? He, he wants us to love on one another. There's nothing sensual or sexual about this holy kiss. In South Africa, everybody gave hugs. I learned to like hugs in South Africa. In fact, you know what? In South Africa, they gave you a kiss. And sometimes on the lips. Barb says, if I'm playing the piano, they can't come up and kiss me. Well, she learned out that that was not true. You can still get a kiss when you're playing. And they'll come right up and she's playing the piano. Lean over and... Boom, playing a kiss. It was nothing, nothing untoward in the kiss. It was a demonstration of love. Now, I'm not telling you, don't go around kissing people here because that's not what we do culturally, okay? If you want to give hugs, that's fine. Go ahead and give a hug. We, for some reason, have adopted the idea of shaking hands. I don't know. That doesn't really say to me that you love me, but anyway, that's okay. But we need to show by the things we do, the works that we do, that we love one another. And we're looking out for one another's best interests. He wants his readers to know the peace of God. Wow. If you have the peace of God abounding in your heart and in your mind, you will be faithful in your service to the one who has called you. He wants us to live our lives demonstrating the love of God to one another. These things should be characteristic of the body of Christ. No matter where you go, whether you're in America, whether you're in South Africa, where you're, whether you're in France, whether you're in Timbuktu, it doesn't matter where you are, these truths, these characteristics should be part of your life. We had people who would come to South Africa to, to be part of a missionary team or to be part of a ministry, short-term ministry. I remember a guy by the name of Ron. Ron was a, he was a 
rough and rugged carpenter kind of a guy, a builder, a lot like Nick. And we had a guy in our church, Charlie, hopefully someday you'll get to meet him. Charlie didn't let anybody go through the doors of our church without a hug. And when, and, and when he would come to our house, he expected a hug. And, and he would call our kids by name, Joshua, come give me a hug. And Joshua would come and, you know, he'd like, Joshua, that is not a hug. And Joshua would look up at Uncle Charlie, give me a hug. And so Joshua would go like this, Josh, two hands are required for a proper hug. We still tell Josh that. He's not a hugger. Two hands, squeeze. This guy, Ron, who came to visit, met Charlie. Ron's, and Charlie's, no, 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 that doesn't work here. So he grabbed him by the hand, he pulled him in, and he put his arms around him, and he gave him a hug, and Ron said, wow, wow. From that day on, Ron became a hugger. Every time we go back to Germantown Hills, Ron gives us a hug. It's not stick out your hand unless it's to pull you close and give you a hug. We need to love one another in the body of Christ. Why? Because it brings glory to our great God. When the world around us sees us loving each other in the right kind of way, they're like, man, I never saw that before. I've never experienced that before. I don't know what that is. Well, come be part of our family because we want to love on you. That doesn't mean that everybody here has to give everybody hugs. But you need to use whatever it is God has given you to minister to the lives of others and let them know that you love them and you care for them and you, you want to work alongside of them in the ministry of our great God. You see, our calling is to live as Jesus lived and to be instruments that God can use to bring others to a right relationship with him and to bring glory to his great name as we serve him together, as we live for him together, and as we do community together at Calvary Baptist Church of Preble, New York. Everybody needs to know that God is first in our life based on the, what we believe about the word of God and based on the way we serve one another and serve our community. Get ready for September 17th. It's going to be here before you know it. We want to love on our community so they know the grace of God and God is glorified. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. We thank you so much for loving us. We know, Father, that we don't deserve your love, never done anything, never did anything that would indicate we should be loved by the God of the world, the creator of the universe, the one true God. But because of who you are, you love us. And we say to you this morning, thank you for that love. Thank you for that love that was demonstrated in Christ going to the cross, which we celebrated this morning in communion. Thank you in the fact that you raised your son from the dead. You were accepted of the work that he did on the cross of Calvary. You allowed him to sit down at the right hand of the throne of God, indicating that his work was complete. You're a great God, and you demonstrate your love in so many ways to us, and we're so thankful for that. Help us this week, even today, to demonstrate that same kind of love to others that you put in our pathway. Help us to be individuals who communicate love and truth and grace and mercy to others. We pray for our impact in our family lives, in our community lives, in our work lives. Father, help us to live the way you would have us to live and love the way you would want us to love like Jesus loved us. Thank you, Father, for the opportunity to preach your word this morning. 
It's your word that makes a difference in the lives of your people. Thank you for Jesus who makes that word come alive to us. In his name we pray, amen.